Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm so excited to have my special guest and good friend, and in, in many ways, my uh, one of my mentors, uh, especially when it comes to sexuality and gender. Don't laugh, man. That's exactly what you are. I'm so excited to have uh, Dr. Nate Collins on the show. Nate is uh, not a stranger to Theology in the Raw. He's been on here before, and uh, I'm so excited to talk about his book, uh, all but invisible, and his upcoming conference called Revoice, which I am so excited to uh, talk about. Nate, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, good to be here, Preston. Why, why don't we jump in with Revoice? And because uh, I'm so I'm so excited about this, I think it's one of the most needed things for the church today. And I know that for both you and I, you know, we're knee deep in the conversation about sexuality, faith and gender. And mm-hmm. so it, it is kind of our, th- our thing, but I think this is a, an absolute gift for the church. So what, what, let's just go back and well, why don't you start, but what is Revoice as a movement, as a conference, and then maybe get some backstory about how it came about. Sure. Yeah. So Revoice is a conference a ministry that uh, we are uh, kicking off this summer. Uh, this is the first of the conferences. Hopefully, it'll be an annual thing. Um, and it's it's basically a conference that's uh, primary purpose is to support, encourage, and empower gender and sexual minorities so that they can uh, really experience the life-giving character of the traditional uh, historic Christian sexual ethic. Uh, so it's primarily to support and empower uh, and encourage uh, those that population of people, but I mean anybody who who loves LGBT people and wants to 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 participate and show up and learn and encourage as well, uh, they are obviously also welcome. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a multi day conference. We have uh, three keynote speakers and about twenty six workshops, uh, all of which are uh, right aimed right at this conversation about how to make the traditional conservative sexual ethic livable for for LGBT people. And it's in St. Louis, right? July is it twenty sixth to twenty eighth? Yep. Is that so July, July twenty sixth to twenty eighth in St. Louis? So, and they can go to is it just revoice dot com? Is that the URL? Revoice revoice dot us. Revoice dot us. Okay, so revoice dot us. You can go get information on how to register. What is it like a hundred hundred bucks, or is there an early bird special? Or? Well, we just sold out of the early bird. Oh, okay. Uh, so regular registration is one fifty. Okay. Um, we are limited around four hundred people, and already about one hundred and thirty people have signed up. So um, we're anticipating a sellout crowd. That's yeah. what we're hoping and praying for. So uh, jump on it. So th- this is, um, I mean, it's it's for both. Um, LGBT Christians who are living, um, this is going to bias it, but faithfully to Jesus, meaning, I mean, they, they, they're, they're trying to, you know, work out their sexuality in the context of a historically Christian view of marriage and and sexuality. Um, but it's also for, so it's, it's, is it primarily for people who are actually gay, lesbian within that traditional sexual ethic? Or I I know it's also for allies, straight people like me, I'm going to be there, but, um, do you have any estimate, like, is it going to be like 50-50, like parents with gay kids and also gay people? Or or is it so hard to tell? Um, and just to be clear, it, it is for both. I mean, straight allies yes. and LGBT Christians, right? Yeah. No, so I, you know, just in my own journey with uh, education and where I've seen ministry opportunities for me, I had always, I've always thought that uh, I would be um, in church equipping type roles and mm-hmm. going to churches and helping them uh, just have this conversation better. 
But last summer um, and last fall, it just became clear to me that there was a, a, a real need for conservative LGBT Christians to have some public place or venue or event to to, to really call their own, uh, where they could gather and and be encouraged and supported. And and so for that reason, it, it is primarily for that purpose. But that by no means means that other things won't happen or that other purposes aren't are involved as well. And so we, we have about, so of the 26 workshops, I would say about two thirds of them are aimed at supporting LGBT people themselves. Hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that straight people are not allowed to go to those workshops. It just means that uh, hmm. they're workshops that, that will primarily directly benefit conservative LGBT people. So we have three workshops on, on different areas of mental health and hmm. uh, LGBT people. We have um, a couple of workshops on finding community as an LGBT conservative Christian who, you know, you're, you're looking at being single the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. We've got a couple workshops that are aimed specifically at celibacy and mm-hmm. how to, to make celibacy livable. Mm-hmm. So those are the, the types of workshops we have for LGBT people. But we also have about um, eight, maybe nine workshops that are more equipping type mm-hmm. workshops. And if you go to the website, uh, revoice.us, we have about half the workshops up listed on the website, and you can sort them based on whether they're supporting web workshops or whether they're equipping workshops. So, for example, you, Preston, you're teaching on how to be a straight ally, and that would be a, an equipping workshop. We've got a, a pastor who um, is going to teach a workshop specifically for other pastors on how to make your church a, a welcoming place and a safe space for conservative LGBT people. Uh, we've got a, another uh, workshop that's uh, just aimed at people in general, so non-pastoral staff, on mm-hmm. things that they can do at a lay level to uh, to contribute to the safety of of this of the spiritual environment there at their church. So yeah, it's a good it's a, it's a mix. Yeah. Um, we don't know what the actual breakdown is going to be. <laughs> uh, I I thought about putting a, a check mark on the or a a selection box on the registration on a you know your sexual orientation, but I thought that. <laughs> Would be a little too intrusive. Um, I know that other conferences like uh, GCN, now known as uh, Queer Christian Fellowship, I'm pretty sure they have that option on their registration. Um, but I, I don't know. Did they change their name to Queer Christian Fellowship? I didn't know that. They did, yeah. This past January, they announced the name change to Queer Christian Fellowship. Okay, okay, interesting. Uh, you know what? I, yeah. I just realized that um, I, we haven't, <laughs> you're gay, right? <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I might have a lot of listeners right now saying, oh, how, what are these two straight dudes? You know? <laughs> so <laughs> well, why don't you just, <laughs> so let's, let's back up now. And again, I just want to say revoice.us for people who want the information. And I do know a lot of, um, uh, I mean, I've got a pretty good number of people listening to the podcast who are gay, lesbian, queer, same sex attracted, gender dysphoric, whatever, you know, um, who uh, I really hope that they go on the website and consider coming out to this. I think it would be just an amazing time of of refreshment, encouragement, and um, a challenge and relationships. And I'm just I'm so excited about it. But let, so let's back up. So you're you're gay okay. and a Christian, <laughs> um, yep. and you have a PhD in biblical studies or New Testament from uh, Southern the Southern V Southern Baptist Seminary. Um, right. Also, the author of the book "All But Invisible: Exploring Identity Questions at the Intersection of Faith, Gender, and Sexuality," which is a, an incredible book put out by Zondervan, which is an amazing publisher, by the way. 
Um, so tell us quickly, uh, well, not quickly, as, as long as it takes, um, your story. Uh, well, uh, people who have been listening to this podcast have, have, may have already heard it a while back. You were on last year, but um, maybe give us, yeah, the quick version of, of your, your journey in faith, sexuality, and marriage, and all that stuff. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm 37 years old, and so my, my, uh, my journey has spanned quite a, a bit of ground um, just in the way that Christians have, have uh, dealt with this issue and had tried to talk about sexual orientation. So, well, like when I first came out to my dad, uh, he, I, he says this. I don't remember it. I'm kind of glad. But uh, he says that the way I said it was, Dad, I think I'm a homosexual. <laughs> 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 and I just go, you know, gag at myself right now for for using that that language. But I mean, I, it, that points probably to how repressed I felt, hmm. to how how early on in the journey I was um, in in learning how to reconcile my faith and orientation. And I was 19 years old when I came out to him. Hmm. Um, I had only come out to a couple people at that point, uh, but he was a good friend, hmm. and so and it is one of my best friends to, to stay. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a, a third world country as well. My parents were missionaries. Um, so I really, and you know, obviously I was a teenager in the nineties. And so, I mean, the conversation was in a very different place. Culture was in a very different place, um, back then. Um, and my way of coping with, with my attention was just to ignore it. So I was barely even self-aware enough to, to have the, 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 the common experience that people have today of just, you know, praying every night before they go to bed, God, please help me wake up straight instead mm-hmm. of gay. Um, I didn't even think about it that much. That's a, that's com- that's a, common, ex- that's a common experience, you'd say? I mean, almost across the board? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I've actually heard a lot of people, you know, talking about um, praying every night before they went yeah. to bed or every day. God, please take this away from me. Please take this away from me. Make me normal. Please, can't I? Why can't I be normal? I think in Andrew Barron's um, study, it's yeah, it's a, it's I, if I remember correctly, it's it's like over ninety percent or something when people first experience kind of attraction to same sex, it's it's unwanted and they pray whether they believe in God or not, they're praying out to somebody and and uh, yeah, yeah, wow, yeah. So I mean, I, I think I, I probably did that some, but I don't have this strong memory of that being hmm. characteristic of my teenage years or anything. Okay. Um, and then I, uh, I went to college, um, went to, to Moody Bible Institute. That's where I met my wife. And at this point you're like, wait, wife. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, my, my story is not a, what I would say a typical story, um, in the sense that, uh, it's something that a lot of uh, non-straight people will want for themselves. Um, I had always wanted to get married, always uh, had uh, the ideas of having a family and, you know, and, and a lot of gay people do have uh, desires for family. Um, it's it's the, the the opposite opposite sex spouse that sort of gets them tripped up. Mm. And um, I just thought, you know what? It only takes one person. Just meet the right person, and um, that could that could be my story. And and that's what ended up happening. So I ended up meeting my wife um, and my future wife in, in Bible college. Um, we started dating about a year and a half after we met and I came out to her that summer and uh, you know, her response was, well, I'm already in love with you. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens um, and whether we would continue to grow closer to each other and eventually move forward to marriage or whether it would um, just become apparent that, that that was not what God went for us. And things kept 
moving forward, we kept spending time with each other and learning more about each other and growing closer together emotionally and and thinking spiritually about you know our calling in life and how uh, my calling could make her a better Christian and how her calling uh, lived out with me could make me a better child of God and and the th- interesting thing is and this is what I've found with most um, mixed orientation marriages uh, where one spouse is gay and the other is straight um, that are that are working and that are thriving. Um, what usually ends up happening uh, or had happened in, in those marriages early on in the relationship is that the, the attraction that they feel towards the, the gay spouse feels towards the straight spouse isn't sexual. It isn't physical at first. It's mm-hmm. just emotional and the, the emotional and spiritual connection. And then the physical and sexual aspects uh, tend to follow at that point um, as you continue to get closer and closer to each, to each other. And, and what begins to develop is not a generalized opposite sex orientation or straight orientation, but a one woman or a one man orientation that sort of operates on a kind of a parallel track maybe to the Mm. otherwise default gay orientation. And that's, that's my experience. Um, Mm. I'm, I identify as gay because I have a, a latent, uh, gay orientation that, uh, is operative pretty much every day. Um, but I also have a one woman orientation towards my wife. And uh, that is something that I mean I praise God for because we're, I'm I'm married and I sh- I, I want that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's it's also marriage is also based on the you know the commitment you you make vows and and you stay together and so you know we've had rough times in our marriage like like most marriages and some of the rough times have been related to my orientation hmm. and at those times we have to to remember that that no relationship that's meaningful is going to be easy. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the perseverance that we have uh, by God's grace to, to, to keep moving forward and to keep drawing closer to each, each other really just makes the meaningful times even more meaningful hmm. uh, for us. That's great, man. So, now, yeah, I, I don't think I've yet, I've yet to meet Sarah. I don't, I think, I mean, maybe a little bit. I don't think you have no. Yeah, it's no, crazy. This summer. Wow. I'm so excited. <laughs> She's doing a workshop too, right? Yeah, yeah, she's teaching a work. She's co-teaching a workshop on spiritual abuse. Oh wow! <laughs> so she's gonna, yeah. There, she and another guy named uh, David Gill. He's uh, David Gill is a he has an MDiv from Covenant Presbyterian Seminary. Okay. Um, they're gonna teach about spiritual abuse and just yeah, how LGBT people in particular have been impacted by hmm. by Christianity in ways that are not helpful, unfortunately. Let's go there. Um, I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but let's let's go back in time about eight months to uh, August of 2017 when a bunch of Christians released something called the Nashville Statement. Um, it was uh-huh. kind of a, a big deal. Well, you know, it's funny, Nate. I I was in San Francisco in front of couple hundred pastors in September, mm-hmm. early September. And I asked, how many of you have heard of the national statement? And about 10% raised their hands. <laughs> so even, yeah. even in the world of, of the World Wide Web, uh, when everything's kind of local, um, it is interesting how it does seem to be somewhat, because I mean, in, in my world, and you're obviously in your world, it was a huge thing, huge. It was like what yeah. everybody's yeah. talking about for weeks. And, um, but that, that is still maybe wasn't as, as, 
big in everybody's world in the same way. But um, I'm not going to define. I think most of my listeners know what the national statement was. You know, the statement about where um, that ch- certain portions of the church or people, you know, stand on issues of sexuality and gender. Um, can you? Uh, do, do you feel comfortable talking about it, Nate? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, um, real quick, just another quick anecdote. Like you had, you were in that group with the, that group of pastors, mm-hmm. and ten percent. About a, a week or two after the national statement, I was in front of another group. It was a, a mini conference. Mm-hmm. Um, some pastors, a lot of pastors, perhaps, but a good portion, maybe of the LGBT people as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe about a total of one hundred and fifty people. And I asked that question: Who mm-hmm. all has heard of the national statement? And every single person raised their hand. Wow. Wow. So yeah, it's it's weird. I mean, I don't know what demographic you have to fall in to have heard of the national statement. I know, um, I know. But what? it was on it was on some radars, and it was not on other radars. That's so, I, it. It probably is denominational and even geographical. Like, I mean, just think about you know. I know the Gospel Coalition, maybe not as an organization, but that kind of that crowd. You know, they are mm-hmm. they are bigger. Uh, from kind of east of the Mississippi, it seems like you know, and that's where a lot of influential people in in that crowd are. And 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 that was in San Francisco, and it's w- the West Coast vibe. Yeah, is it is yeah. different, man. I mean, they yeah, they, I mean, they have their kind of local people that they look up to, and um, yeah, I mean, there, there's people that are so well known in their circles that are unknown in in the rest of America. So I think it could be geographical and even denominational too, but. Um, yeah. so, so, I mean, in a sense, both you and I, and, and, and I've been very critical of this statement, um, within, I mean, I would say, I don't know if you would, well, I think you'd say this, maybe <laughs> I don't want to put words in your <laughs> mouth, but you know, I, I, the way I frame my critique is this, this is within the context of, um, we're in agreement on some foundational, significant theological things. This is, this is not That's right. uh, one side arguing against another side, but I, I would call it an in-house uh, conversation about how to address something that both of us feel um, needs to be addressed, for, for lack of better terms. Yeah. I, so for me, it, mm-hmm. and I still, I mean, I know a lot of people say, oh, I agreed with the statement. You know, I could, I could sign up. I just disagree with the tone. The, you know, it was a wrong time. It was a wrong way. You need to all this stuff. And I was like, well, I definitely agree with all that, but I actually do disagree with some of the, the some of the content. But at the same time, we both have, uh, me and every signer would, would agree on some foundational things about marriage and sexuality. But um, yeah, what, from the perspective of somebody who is gay, who is committed to a historic Christian sexual ethic, what specifically for you and maybe people in, in who are like you in your, in your category, mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. What was it about the statement that was the most hurtful? So, um, what, uh, there's a couple things and they're, they're different. I would put them in different categories of, of the kinds of things that hurt uh, in terms of the actual content of the, um, of the statement. Uh, what it was, one of the major things that was hurtful for me was the denial in article seven um, that denial says uh, we deny that adopting a homosexual or transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's verbatim. I've memorized that and said it over and over again because people have asked. <laughs> that sounds. That and sounds. What, yeah, that sounds out right. And the, yeah. yeah. So like, so that seems to basically 
categorically rule out anybody who has decided that using the gay label as an identifier for themselves is okay for them. Hmm. And uh, if you read my book, you know clearly where I stand on that. I, I lay out a, a case for um, a way of using the gay identity label mm -hmm. um, for conservative Christians in ways that are consistent, I believe, with God's purposes in creation and redemption. Um, and so that, that denial pretty clearly seems to rule me out and rule mm -hmm. others like me who um, would identify as gay, but also are committed to a historic Christian sexual ethic. So that, you know, that, that really hurts. Um, I have friends, close friends who signed the national statement, who are among the initial signatories of the national statement. Um, and so to, to have that sort of a, a frontline attack on me and whether or not I, you know, I'm, I'm orthodox. Uh, the, the document postures itself as a marker of orthodoxy. Um, and to, to, to be ruled out like that from people that I normally would identify with and, and consider my people, mm -hmm. uh, that really hurt. That was a betrayal for me, a rejection. Mm. And so that, you know, leads to the question, you know, well, how did they get away with that? <laughs> hmm. And the way they got away with it is not consulting anybody like me in drawing up the national statement, mm -hmm. um, not involving any uh, gay Christians who would disagree with that mm -hmm. um, to, to be a part of drawing it up or to be in the initial the, the meeting where everybody met to, to hammer through things, which really consisted of four one hour speeches and then one hour of, of back and forth. So really they deliberated this thing for about an hour, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a massive failure of process uh, in my opinion. And this is, I mean, secondhand information. I wasn't at the meeting. I wasn't invited to the meeting. I didn't know anything about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously <laughs> what's that, <laughs> which is I fine. I've got enough on my plate, but I, I don't know. It's, and I'm not like, oh, how come I didn't get invited? But I mean, it's kind of like, I think I hopefully would be have something to say or be, be like in in the conversation and at a level enough where they would at least be one of the couple hundred people or hundred people or whatever that were kind of invited to that. But whatever, I, I um, exactly. But I do know people that were there or that did offer critiques or feedback, and it wasn't that they didn't enlist feedback. Is that as far as I can see. Um, none of it was heated. You know, I've, I've talked to a few people yeah. that said they gave, you know, pretty extensive and, and, and like, Hey, I, I agree with it. I think this is good. Here's several things you should consider. And, and nothing was really listened to it was, it was, yeah. was my impression. I don't want to be, you know, like spread gossip. If that's true, it is, if not, whatever, but that's, that's, that was kind of the vibe that was there. But, um, so how, so, um, I mean, this has really affected you, right? Nate? I mean, you and your wife and, and a lot of people in your, for lack of better terms, your community or your people who are, you know, yeah. uh, wrestling with their sexuality under the historic Christian sexual ethic, like, or the, you know, um, I don't actually love the phrase side B. I, I know, you know, it's kind of popular, but for lack yeah. of better terms in the, si in, the in, in the side B Christian community, how, has, has the experience been similar to yours? Has there been a lot of pain or, or is it really just you and your wife who've had a hard time with it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it was extensively, um, it was yeah. It was devastating. Uh, really? I would I would I would use that word um, without reservation. Um, the day it hit, uh, 
I saw that community just take a massive spiritual blow. Really? Um, I saw people questioning whether or not evangelicalism was still from them, like their group. Um, if people could talk about our experience in the way that they did and the sort of the cold clinical uh, heavy handed uh, way that they did, um, then yeah, I saw uh, rampant uh, questioning of whether or not evangelical Christianity was had space for them. Um, it's you, been used. I've heard stories of pastors using it against LGBT people and people having to leave their churches. Um, and so it's it's so the, the the content of you know the Article Seven denial, for example, is one thing. The uh, the other thing that's really missing, and you mentioned earlier, uh, the issue of tone. That is a massive oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, to 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 begin a conversation, which is what it's trying to do, mm-hmm. without acknowledging the hurt and pain that conservative LGBT Christians have experienced from other conservatives, let alone that you know the larger, broader LGBT community outside. Christianity has experienced from mm-hmm. from churches uh, to completely neglect to mention that in a document that's addressing this question mm-hmm. is starting off on the polar opposite wrong foot. Uh, anytime I think the church is aiming to speak prophetically about something like that, um, where there has been pain and suffering and mm-hmm. persecution um, of a marginalized people group, then the first thing that needs to be clear is that the, the Christians are uh, repentant for that, mm-hmm. that there, it, you know, there's a, a a posture of humility um, that needs to to be um, informing every step of that that conversation, and that posture is, I believe, 100% lacking in uh, in the national statement. There would have been an adequate opportunity to put it in the preamble, yeah. um, to put a a statement of of apology or regret mm-hmm. or. Um, some reference that, yeah, we're, we realize we're speaking to people that we've hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, if that had been there, then it would have been a completely different statement. Hmm. Um, but the, the, the complete lack of that, that uh, awareness that, that you, humility is required for this conversation to be Christ-honoring, mm-hmm. for this document to be a gospel-centered document, mm-hmm. humility is required. That, that was so even... I share a similar passion to maintain theological integrity in the church. And yeah, it's almost it's totally. almost it's almost because I share that same passion that I was so upset <laughs> um yeah, and discouraged well, by the tone because because until we start apologizing and, and acknowledging wrong and and changing our posture and doing all these things we're not going to maintain theological integrity. <laughs> well, no, because well, it's just as much a matter of theological integrity to see the social justice side yes, of this conversation. Yes, that, the, that the church has sinned against image bearers of right. God. Yeah, and that like that has that's <laughs> that's the a church theological has acted problem. In ways, <laughs> that's a theological. That's every bit as much a theological yeah. conviction as whether or not we maintain. A, a traditional uh, historic Christian sexual ethic. That's part of it, what it means to live out a traditional Christian sexual ethic today is recognizing yeah. that the pain and harm that we've caused non-straight people in the past is real mm-hmm. and to this day is unrepentant for. And younger, um, especially younger people, let's just say under 30 or maybe even under 40, um, if if we don't have that tone of 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 
being apologetic and, 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 and not harming people and extending love to all of God's children. Um, until we have that, people aren't going to want anything to do with our theology. So we're like, no, we need to make yeah. sure there's theological drift. There's theological drift. You want to stop theological drift, start loving like crazy and start yeah. apologizing for how we've done harm. And then maybe people might actually say, oh, okay, well, if, if I, if, if, if I can do that and hold to the theology, I can do that. But if it's an either or, people are not going to want that theology. So, and, and, and Christian leaders who don't do that will have zero credibility. Exactly. And, exactly. And yeah. not because they're wishy-washy on biblical authority, but because they're not living out the mm-hmm. gospel in this conversation. Right. Um, I, I was really, I, and I know we, we kind of live in different worlds, Nate, but I mean, I was, I was, I guess, kind of encouraged in a weird way with how many people who I would say are pretty conservative that didn't like mm-hmm. the national statement. I remember when I, I, I was on, on vacation and yeah. I rarely, rarely do When I'm on vacation, I'm rarely ever on vacation. I'm always plugged in, always working. And I was in Hawaii and sure enough, literally on the plane flight, I think is when it was released and my phone is blowing up. What do you think about this? What's going on? How would you respond? And, and I sat there for a few days yeah. and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I was like, all right, honey, I need an afternoon to write a response. Cause I just, I'm not gonna build vacation until I, um, do this. And then, yeah. so when I wrote that and I was like, Oh gosh, you know, it's going to be farewell press and sprinkle forever. And I'm already not in, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that crowd thinks of me. I, <laughs> I don't know if they know what to do with me, but, um, I was like, oh, okay, this is gonna be the final kind of nail in the coffin. You know, I'm going to be written off by anybody who's the slightest to the right of me. I was shocked at how many people who I would say are very conservative were texting me, emailing me saying, man, I totally agree with you. Thank you so much. That's exactly, you put kind of words of how I was feeling. Or I, <laughs> one of my good friends says that he signed it, but then when he read my thing, he wishes he didn't sign it. And um, so I wow. was shocked. I, I, it kind of encouraged me that this isn't kind of like, yeah. oh, if you're more left-leaning or more progressive, you didn't like the national statement. But if you're really s- staying true to evangelicalism, you're, you're for it. No, there was a lot of people that would typically resonate with, yeah, let's, you know, stand our ground. Let's ma- maintain theological integrity that they're like, Oh, but that's not how we should go about doing it. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that is encouraging. Um, it, it, it's interesting that what was intended to be a consensus document, um, is perhaps not garnering as much consensus as they hoped. Maybe, I don't yeah. know. Um, cause I've, I've, I've heard, uh, once I get out of the, the bubble, I'm in, I, I've heard similar uh, feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope that's right. Yeah. Hey Nate, we're gonna finish up here in just a second, but I want to talk about um your book just quickly, All But Invisible, Exploring Identity mm-hmm. Questions at the Intersection of Face, Gender, and Sexuality. Um, can you tell give us some a co- couple of quick snapshots, some highlights in this book? And uh, what I love about the book is it's so clear, Nate, and yet it's it's a very thoughtful, it's like it's not an academic book per se. It's almost like a an accessible academic book, or we can say maybe a thoughtful, like popular level book. And I I love that it's, Mm -hmm. it rides that middle space. Um, But what are some key things there that you feel like, man, that you, maybe some of the more provocative parts of it or, or some key ideas (laughs) in the book, if people are interested in the red meat. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just, I guess first I can just describe how it's broken down. Um, I don't think it's one of those books that you have to read from cover to cover the whole thing to get mm-hmm. to come away with something. Um, 
the, there's three main ideas, uh, three main points. Um, the first is I address what I call the vision problem in the first part. And the vision problem is simply this, that uh, conservative Christianity has no compelling vision hmm. to make the conservatives, the historic Christian sexual ethic livable for non-straight people. Hmm. Uh, we don't have a vision. We have not figured out how to cast a vision that makes the conservative uh, Christian sexual ethic livable. And so I flesh that out over three chapters and end with just some positive um, suggestions. Uh, I go through the different patterns of living that a, a non-straight person who is uh, committed to a historic Christian sexual ethic can find themselves in, whether it's uh, singleness or mixed orientation marriage or intentional community or um, and probably the edgiest of them it would be something along the lines of a celibate partnership where two non-straight people who ideally are, are minimally sexually attracted to each other um, decide just to do life together. And I, I think it's ideal if, if more than two, so perhaps three uh, mm. end up in, in that kind of a situation. Um, so it doesn't, so it just makes it crystal clear. This is not a marriage by any means. This right. is nothing. This is not a marriage. That's a different category. Uh, can so can I jump in real the quick? Cause I, I, I get this question quite a bit actually now, uh, what celibate partnerships and could, could, should two gay people live together? Uh, even if they're not engaged in sexual relationships and, um, and, and actually came up the other day in a sexuality conference on just can, can a boyfriend live with his girlfriend? And I mm-hmm. said, here's my response to that, uh, would be, well, there's no verse I can point to that they're in sin. O- only sexual relationships are specified. I think boyfriend and girlfriend, it'd probably be unwise. Um, yeah. But this is kind of a different yeah, – I don't want to map that onto the, your question at all. I think it is different. Totally. But what about the different. whole like temptation and is this wise and and why put yourself through that kind of whatever um, – what would you say to that? I think I know what you'd say to it, but I'd love to hear it from you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think it's wisest when there's minimal sexual attraction involved, um, but you can never predict whether that'll arise, arise or not mm-hmm. in a relationship. And so the, the, the key difference is that a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship is, by definition, mm. open towards marriage, open towards eventually sexual expression if God, you know, leads towards mar- if the, God leads the individuals involved towards marriage. Whereas a celibate partnership, by definition, is not moving towards marriage. Mm. It mm-hmm. is, it is uh, designed to actually enhance the individuals involved' ability to be celibate. And so, you would not want to um, be in a celibate partnership with somebody who you're not able to be celibate with. That's not consistent with the definition of a celibate partnership. And this is going to be such a dumb footnote, but for some of my straight listeners, it might be helpful. Just because you're same sex attracted doesn't mean you're sexually attracted to everyone of the same sex <laughs> like this is true <laughs> so i this mean is true sure i you know there could a guy and a girl be roommates together and it's like well you know what there's, there's a ton of girls that theoretically i mean i'm married so what happened i mean there's tons of women that yeah. i like look we can live together we can we can live in the same room and ain't nothing's gonna happen <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah so i think yep. some people just think oh if they're same sex attracted to the same sex well gosh they're just gonna be you know having raging sex all night you know it's like come on dude like yeah. just think through a straight lens and then map that on this so um, yeah yeah so yeah, that's that's the first part. And then real quickly, the second two parts are basically looking at uh, big ideas that I think we need to talk about. Uh, the first one being orientation. 
Uh, what is orientation? Um, what is it theologically? Because right now, all of the discussion basically, I think, assumes a lot of Freudian presuppositions about orientation. Hmm. And so I, I end with a suggestion that we recenter orientation around the perception and admiration of personal beauty instead of around sex. Hmm. Uh, I think think that that is a more uh, a robustly Christian idea, uh, that we are intrinsically beings that recognize beauty in other image bearers. Hmm. And when there's a pattern for that recognition, i.e. predominantly in the same sex or predominantly in the opposite sex, and that's what I would call an orientation. Um, now, does sexuality uh, figure into it? Well, of course. Uh, we are also sexual beings, and so inevitably, I think that orientation is going to be experienced in some way uh, in the context of sexuality. But I don't think that sexuality itself is at the center of orientation. And what that does, I think, is it frees non-straight people up, and I think straight people, to, to think non-sexually about people they're attracted to, hmm. uh, to and to think. Uh, in ways that that could deepen perhaps relationships with individuals that they might experience a degree of attraction to. I love, to, you have to a phrase. It. You have a phrase on one sixty four about affectionate intimacy, and he distinguishes yeah. it from you know sexual intimacy, but it's still intimate, but almost like more than just maybe. Well, it is friendship intimacy, but I, I love that it phrase is. and just the whole. I love how you open up the complexity of what intimacy is. Well, so I talk about affectionate intimacy, but then I also talk about unitive intimacy mm-hmm. and how unitive intimacy can be physical in the example of you know sexual relationships, but it doesn't have to be physical. It can be emotional. And I use the example of, of David and Jonathan where it says mm-hmm. uh, Jonathan uh, loved David as himself and um, uh, it's, it talks about the, his soul being knitted to the soul of David. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's a unifying a kind of intimacy that they had, but it was emotional. It was uh, maybe even spiritual in a sense. Um, mm. And I want to, I want to leave the door open for two gay people to have that kind of intimacy with each other. Mm. Um, Cause that's not something that the Bible ever condemns. It just right. condemns act- acts of physical sex. Right. So that's, that's the second part. What is orientation? And then I try and bring it all home with five long chapters on identity Hmm. And how do we figure all of this, uh, how do we relate all of this to the idea of having a Christian identity that's primary, but then also having uh, gender identity, mm-hmm. like man and woman. And then what I say, uh, what I suggest uh, is having also secondary gender identities uh, that th- further specify what kind of man or what kind of woman someone is based on an orientation. Hmm. And so uh, straight would be a secondary gender identity, but so would gay and lesbian. Hmm. That's super helpful, Nate. I'm excited. I mean, I've gotten so much out of this book. I, your two chapters on on uh, gender were, I, I think, so clear and so helpful because that conversation is is so convoluted and, and hard to kind of get into. And so many, so mm-hmm. much great stuff here. Um, thanks for writing it, Nate. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show again. The, uh, your book is all but invisible, and I highly encourage everybody listening to check out revoice.us uh, uh, and consider going to the revoice conference nate thanks so much for being on theology in the raw thanks so much for having me Preston. good to talk to you all right take care bud